Our text this morning is in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 11 and 12. Hear now the word of the Lord that is sufficient, authoritative, and true. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Praise be to God for His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would make Your Word real to us this morning that you would cause it to grow swiftly and deeply in our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting how the Lord superintends circumstances. Things come up in the course of a year days in which we are likely to remember certain events. We think of Easter, we think of Christmas, and ordinarily we try and find songs that fit with them, perhaps even a sermon that will fit with them. Then there are other events, too, that are sort of particularly Protestant, and this is one of those occasions. We tend to think of the last Sunday in October as Reformation Sunday, even though there's no such day on our calendar. It's it's a day in which we tend to remember Martin Luther nailing his theses up on uh, the door of the cathedral at Wittenberg, because he did that on October 31st. And so we come then to a text uh, on a day like this. Even this evening, we're going to get together and try and commemorate uh, that act of God in history, and we look down and see that the sermon title for us this morning is The Importance of Good Works. And perhaps you might think, Pastor Greco, Reformation Day, good works, they don't really go together. Well, yes, they do. And I think this morning just gives us yet another occasion to see the the applicable nature of the entire counsel of God. As we see that good works have a purpose in God's plan, especially as we think about justification in Martin Luther, we want to remember those two verses that probably many of you have memorized, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we forget that Paul's paragraph doesn't end there. He goes on to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, good works can tend to be kind of a dirty word in Protestant circles. And sometimes even thinking about good works causes us to get immediately tired, mentally fatigued. We think about all the things that we need to do or that we've left undone. Perhaps you've experienced this even just 
in an ordinary fashion. Maybe some of you children have done something around the house that's unusual. You've taken the dishes out of the dishwasher when you haven't been asked. Or you've picked up your room before you've been told to. And mom and dad come by and you're all ready to be praised and honored. And they just walk by. Oh, that's nice. And you think, I don't even know why I bothered to do that. You see, we can get fatigued when, uh, when our good works aren't recognized, when we don't get a benefit from them. But you see, Peter says to his flock, Christians that are struggling, he says, it's okay if you don't get immediate recognition and benefit for your good works. Because that's not the purpose of them to start with. Your good works are really all about God, as Paul says in Ephesians 10, not about you. And so, as Peter describes here these good works. I'd like us to look this morning at three things. An easy outline to remember, I think. First, we'll look at the command itself. The command of good works. And then secondly, we'll look at the context of that command. Because it doesn't come out of the sky. It comes as pastoral counsel to a flock that needs it. So Peter tells us the command, he tells us the context of that command, and then he gives us the consequence of that command. Three C's, easy to remember. But these two short verses are something that we need, I think, to take to heart as we try and live the Christian life day to day. The first thing we see then is the command of Peter. Notice how he begins, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This command is a twofold command. It's like this often in Scripture. Don't do this. Do this. He begins with the don't. Sometimes. The biblical writers begin with the positive, sometimes they begin with the negative. Here he begins with the don't. He tells them to abstain. He tells his people that they are not to do something. They are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's a very strong word. Abstaining is more than simply laying off chocolate for a period of time to lose some weight. Or perhaps giving up a couple of football games during the week and only watching three and not ten. No, the word here for abstain is a very forceful word. It means stay very far away. It doesn't mean have the works of the flesh, have the passions of the flesh. Well, they're here, so you go over here. It's they're here, so you go back, out the corner, out the door, down the street. Be very far away from them. Paul gets at this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. You may know the verse where he tells the Thessalonians to abstain from all appearance of evil. Don't even let appearance, the appearance of evil show itself, let alone evil. Be as far from it as possible. That's Peter's counsel to these Christians and to us. And it comes in the form of a command. Notice that he says, I urge... This word urge is a word that is filled with meaning. It has the context of a pastoral pleading. Paul uses the same word when he's talking about... You remember the story in Philippians of the two women that are fighting? 
And he says, I would urge them that they would be of the same mind, that they would come together. He says, as your pastor, I urge you to patch up your differences and reconcile and be together. Peter's telling us this for our own good. It's a pastoral pleading, but there's force behind it. It's not a suggestion. It's not Peter nervously shuffling his feet and going, well, you may possibly want to think about, if it's not too much trouble, let let me just... No, he says, I urge you to abstain from these passions. There's a force behind it. It's the same kind of force that Paul tells Titus in how he is to deliver the gospel. He says, I urge you to do it this way. Strong words from Peter. Stay very far away, and I'm giving you a command with a pastoral backing. Well, what is it that we are supposed to stay far away from? We're supposed to stay far from passions of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? If we look at it just at face value, we may think that it doesn't apply to us. Maybe we're not really emotional people. We can't all be as blessed to be Italian and show our emotions on our sleeve, right? Some of us are scotch or other nationalities where we're a bit more reserved. But that's not what Peter's getting at here. He's not saying don't show a bunch of emotion. What he's saying is you need to stay away from these strong desires, these passions. And what kind of strong desires? They're the ones of the flesh. Now again, we can think, well, we don't have strong passions and desires of the flesh. Our eating habits are fine. Our marital habits are fine. We don't hit anyone. We don't do things with our flesh. But that, again, is not what Peter's getting at. Because flesh in the Bible doesn't just mean the physical, the visible, as opposed to the invisible. It means passions that are sinful, that are marked by the sinful, unredeemed flesh. It's a special word for flesh here that's different from the word for flesh and bone. These sorts of passions are the ones that are the beginnings, the fertile ground in which sin grows. You remember that passage in James chapter 1 where he says that we have lusts or passions and they lead to sin and sin leads to death. What Peter's saying here is stay as far as you can from death and sin, so far that you're far away even from these passions because they war against your soul. They're like soldiers, like an army that comes against you to destroy you. Peter gives us an illustration of this. If you have your Bible open to 1 Peter, you might want to turn the page to chapter 4. We'll look at this in weeks to come, but just as an illustration, look here what he says. He says, Living for the rest of the time in the flesh, this is what we're not to do, No longer for human passions, there's that word passions again, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles would do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. These are the sorts of things that mark the life of an unbeliever, not a believer. Believers are supposed to be very far from them, to keep them as far as possible from themselves. This is what we are not to do. But Peter then also reinforces this with this is what we are supposed to do. He says, do not do this and do this. Namely, have your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. 
this is an important command for us today. You see, because much of civic religion, much of even modern Christianity is concerned with the don'ts of life. If we have a column of things that we're supposed to list out in the way in which a Christian is supposed to live, if there were a don't column and a do column, for most people the don't column is about a mile and a half long and the do column is very short. Don't do this. Don't live like that. Don't go to certain movies. Don't read certain books. Don't say certain things. Don't lie. All of which are applicable. Peter's just told us not to do certain things. But he says it's not enough simply to stay away from sin. Oftentimes we can kid ourselves and stunt our sanctification by just saying to ourselves, we're not that bad. We haven't lied to anyone lately. Without thinking about how we have told the truth. We say, well, we're not that bad. We haven't stolen from anyone without thinking about how generous we have been. Right? Peter tells us it's not enough to simply avoid sin or to abstain from sin. And this is typical of the scriptures. Paul says in Romans 13 that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when we were in Galatians in chapter 5, We were told to walk in the Spirit. Not just simply not to do certain things, but to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to live lives that show a certain thing. And what is that thing? Well, Peter says it not once, but twice. We're supposed to live lives that are good and excellent. Peter uses this word for good and excellent not once, but twice. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. They namely have good, noble, beautiful conduct. So that when they see your good works, good, noble, beautiful works, they will have a certain reaction. We're to live lives that are excellent. Excellent so that others see them, even those who are not believers will be affected by them. Now, I don't know that Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood modern American Christianity. But I I have a feeling he didn't need to because modern American Christianity probably isn't any different than first century Galatian Christianity or Christianity in Antioch. Because Peter then addresses something that's vital for us today. He says, you know, it's not enough to have your conduct good and honorable for an hour or if we're good conservative Protestants, two and a half hours on Sunday. He says, have your conduct honorable. This is one of Peter's favorite words. It's a word that he uses so often that 60% of all the times it's used in the Bible, Peter uses it. Think about that. Peter's only written two short letters. And he uses 60% of these occurrences It's this word conduct or way of life. It means everything about your life. It's the picture that we get in numbers of parents teaching their children when they lay down, when they sit, when they walk, when they eat, when they go. Everywhere you go, you're there, Peter says. And your conduct should be honorable. What does this mean to us? Well, it means, first of all, We can't affect that. Not effect. Affect with an A. What does that mean, kids? It means you can't pretend to have this kind of conduct. 
pretending is hard, isn't it? Pretending that you like someone when maybe you don't. Pretending that you like to eat a certain food. Maybe your mom made something and you ate it and you really didn't like it. And you said, well, oh no, that was okay, mom. And then what happens the next time it rolls around? You're a little bit less excited about eating it. She says, well, you liked it last time. And maybe you grudge through it and you eat it. And then a couple of weeks later it rolls around again and you think to yourself, I'm never going to be free of this food. It's going to keep coming back. It's hard to pretend these sorts of things. And that's what it's like to pretend that you love the Lord. To pretend that you like to read the Bible. To pretend that you like to pray. To pretend that you want to seek others' good before your own. It becomes really weary. Really tiring. It's the reason why in every other religion, people who try and practice good works either go into despair or they find every shortcut they can find. You see, this kind of conduct is consistent. It happens all the time. This is the the command that Peter gives us. Abstain from these passions and keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Now, I think it's also important to think about the context of these commands. Because what's oftentimes the biggest excuse we have for not acting in a certain way? I'll raise my hand. Well, you know, you just don't know my situation. I was tired. I was hungry. I've had a bad week. He deserved it. She deserved it, right? We're full of excuses. What Peter does here is he strips away all of our possible excuses. And he gives us the context in which we are to obey the command of God. And the first context that he gives to us is that it's one that we talked about earlier. That we are just passing through. We're passing on through. Peter puts it this way. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You notice that? The command, the urging, comes with an explicit acknowledgement by Peter that he's telling people who are sojourners, aliens, and exiles, pilgrims. Well, what's a sojourner? It's someone who is a resident in a foreign land, but doesn't have all, doesn't have his citizenship in that land. We know about this a lot here in Texas. We have sojourners and aliens. We have them of various sorts, documented, undocumented, temporary, permanent, student, worker. And we recognize there's something different about someone who's not a United States citizen. Well, so it is to the believer. We are traveling, passing through this land, but our citizenship is not here. Paul says, it's in heaven. We're members of another kingdom. We have a different leader, a different king. This is the context that Peter gives to us. We are to obey our king, not the king of another. We're not just sojourners, but we're also exiles. We are pilgrims. This is not our true home. The author of the Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, all these great men of faith, they did this knowing that they were exiles. That this was not their true home. That they were waiting for their true home. This is something that the Lord reminded Israel of. 
You know, we tend to think of Israel as a community of God that had a permanent place. You know, they had a land. It was marked off. And it was theirs in perpetuity. And really what God's people are all about is this physical land. Not so. Right after God told Israel about the promised land, he said this in Leviticus 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And that's true of us as well. Do you enjoy where you live? Do you like your house? Do you like your neighborhood? I hope so. But you know what? It's not really yours. It's on loan from God. When, Lord willing, our building is built and we have a permanent fixture in the community and people come and we minister to them, that is not ours. Capital funds campaigns aside, building payments aside, it is not ours. It's on loan from God. And that kind of mentality allows us to live a certain life, looking forward to something, obeying the commands of one who sees our good. This passing through nature here reminds us of something that's very dear to us at the time that we think about the Reformation, and that is that faith is what matters. In Hebrews 11, those who were strangers and pilgrims were so because of their faith in God, because they looked forward to a better country, a heavenly one. (coughs) Is that your prayer today? In the midst of all of your preparations, managing your investments for retirement, which I hope you do wisely, planning for college for your children, which again, I hope you do wisely, dreaming and thinking about upcoming marriages, whether your own or your children or your grandchildren. Do you think about that in the context that this is temporary? That this is not the end all, be all? That this does not define who you are, but rather that your relationship to the Lord is what defines who you are. This is the context in which Peter gives the command. But there's another kind of context that we need to be reminded of that I think is very helpful for us in modern America. He says it's not just that we're strangers and pilgrims. We're keeping our conduct honorable where, does Peter say? Among the Gentiles. You see, there's danger out there. This is almost like that scene in a movie where the two guys are sitting and he says, first man says, you know, it's quiet out there. And the other guy says, yeah, too quiet. Right? You can almost feel some kind of danger about to happen. And this is what Peter is reminding them. They need to be on alert. This is not a safe place. This kind of command to avoid or abstain from passions and to have your conduct honorable isn't something you only do when it's easy. You see, this is something we do especially when it's hard, when we're among Gentiles, when we are in danger. You see, Gentiles here, Peter is using this in the context, the sense of pagans. We might be reminded of this story. It's an illustration from the Bible. There's someone else who was a stranger and pilgrim. 
a sojourner and an alien. His name was Abraham. And he was wandering about in the promised land before he had made it his permanent home. He was wandering about with his nephew Lot. And there was struggling and strife and quarreling amongst his people and Lot's people. And Abraham came to Lot and he said, we can't have this. You pick one way and I'll pick the other way so that we have enough room. Because we can't have this kind of struggle, especially because the Amorite is out there in the land. There are hostile people out there and they're watching. This this command comes to us in a context in which we expect to be slandered. Do you feel that way sometimes? You do the right thing and you get slandered for it? You see, slandering is one of the marks of a pagan, of a Gentile. Romans says, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 30. He says, indicative of them is that they are slanderers, haters of God. We should expect to be slandered. It also means that we should expect to live lives that are openly visible amongst those who dislike us and what we stand for. Did you know that the early Christians were accused of being cannibals? That was one of the charges brought against them by the Roman Empire. Why? Well, don't you know, because they partook of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. No effort was made to understand what was involved. It was simply enough that this was an accusation that could be grabbed onto. It was open, it was visible, and they were attacked. This is what Joseph went through, isn't it? Potiphar's wife didn't like the fact that he was honorable in his conduct and openly honorable, and so she attacked him and slandered against him and lied. This is the kind of context in which we live in. So if you are facing difficulty because you're under attack at work or at school or in your neighborhood because of a stand that you are making for the word of God and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, know that that is the context in which God wants you to be. Why? Why? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. The third context, just very briefly, but something we need to remember is how this passage begins. Beloved. It's kind of an odd word. The King James has sort of a more florid word, a more flowery word. It says, dearly beloved. And as soon as I say that, you think of a wedding. Right? The NIV has a different kind of phrase. It's it's actually quite weak. It says, dear friends. Beloved actually is the closest we can get to this. Because what it means is, you, you who are loved. And even if it's a little bit odd, it gives us the context in which this command comes. It comes to us, one who is loved. Loved first and foremost by God. Peter's just said this in verses 9 and 10. That we who were not a people are now a people. We who did not have mercy now have mercy. We're translated into the kingdom of God. But it's also that we are loved, and these people are loved, by Peter. 
Notice the personal nature. He says, I urge you. He doesn't just say, the Lord would have it. He doesn't just say, it would be good. He doesn't say, you will be obedient. He says, I urge you to do these things. Because I love you. I want the best for you. And as I stand up here, as the Lord's servant, seeking to expound his word to you, there's a reason why I do it. It's not because I don't have anything better to do on Sunday morning. (coughs) I could go for a big egg and sausage breakfast right now. And I can always have a cup of coffee. It's not just because it's my job. Because I could find ways around that. I could make John come up here every Sunday. But I do it for the same reason that John did it last week. It's because we love you. And we want the best for you. And the best for you means obeying the Lord's commands. Do you treat your children that way? Do you treat your spouse that way? Remember that context when you correct others. You don't just correct them to show them how smart you are. Because you love them. We all have this context, as, we, as I like to remind you, as we have more and more visitors in coming months. That's the context in which we teach them from the Scriptures. That's the context in which we urge them to obey God's commands. Well, we've seen the command that Peter gives to us. And he's laid out a context, stripped away all our excuses. But, but Peter, you don't know the people I have to face. Well, you're among the Gentiles. But, but Peter, you see, I'm not really into that. Well, you're just passing through. But Peter, I'm not really sure. No, you're loved. And the consequence that comes from this command, we see here in verse 12. The first thing is, is that we obey this command to be observed. We obey this command to be observed. Note the very matter-of-fact way in which Peter says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. It's very matter-of-fact. He's saying they're going to observe it. They're going to see it. But it's not the kind of glance, quick observe, that maybe we we look quickly or we, we read a book by flipping pages quickly. The word here for observe, to see, is a careful looking. Peter says one of the consequences of your actions is those who are around you that don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't know the Lord, are going to look and say, why is she doing that? Why is that child acting that way? Doesn't he know he could get away with taking that? Why is that man doing that when he's traveling? You know, if he's in a different city, when he's in Atlanta or in Pittsburgh, nobody's going to know him. He can do whatever he wants. They observe. They see. Our conduct gets attention. It's one of the reasons the Lord has prepared good works for us, so that others may observe it and see it. It's one of the ways in which we are ambassadors for the Lord. It's one of the ways that the Lord uses to draw people to himself. One of the consequences of our good works is that they will be observed. But also, another consequence is to be an example. To be an example. What does that mean? 
Well, in the Old Testament, it was often said that Israel was a byword to the nations. It's kind of a fancy 16th, 17th century way of saying Israel was to be an example before all the nations. Our Lord put it this way, a city on a hill that everyone observes to be seen, to be wondered at, to want what they have. That's the purpose of gathering together is the corporate body of God. Now, there's a special exhortation here. There's a special exhortation here to leaders and officers and especially elders. Hebrews 13 puts it this way, that elders are to be imitated, that we are to consider the outcome of elders' lives and to imitate it after we have considered it. So I ask those of you that are elders, deacons, leaders, are you considering your way of life that one of the consequences is is that you should be encouraging the people of God to imitate your life? Now, if you're not an officer, you're not off the hook because you may be a father. Are you considering that? Perhaps you're not a father yet. Perhaps you're not even married. Maybe Daniel's off the hook. No, Daniel has students. So do you. Even children, you have friends. You see, are you living the kind of life that encourages others to honor and follow God? The first consequence of our actions is that they will be observed. The second is that they will be an example. But the third and most important is at the end of our passage here. We're to keep our conduct honorable so that the Gentiles may see it, and even in the midst of their attacks, even as they are speaking against us as evildoers, they may glorify God in the visitation. You see, good works really are all about God. Do you notice what Peter says? He doesn't say, well, you know, so that they will see it. And they will say, you have really good families. You must really think that the institution of marriage is critical and the bedrock of our society. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, they will see it and they will think you are a stand-up guy. No. They're nowhere in view here. Do you see that? The picture is that those who don't know the Lord look at us and they look right past us to God. Shouldn't surprise us, should it? That if the moon reflects the light of the sun, if the moon were in front of the sun, you'd look right past the moon into the brilliance of the sun. That's what we are called to do, to see that God gets the glory from our actions. And that happens in the present. It's something that happens right now. (coughs) God gets the glory from our good works, as others see it. It's something that happens in the short term of the future. That is how the kingdom is built. Our good works are on display so that others see the truth of God's word and the reality of his promises. And people are drawn to himself. But it goes even beyond that. Do you notice how far out Peter takes it? He says they may glorify God 
on the day of visitation. In the day of glory, of mercy and judgment, when all accounts will be laid bare, when the final judgment will be made, God will get glory from what we do today. Did you ever think about that? When someone asks you, when you go up to the movie theater, is your child 10 or 11? It's child prices 10 and down. And you look and your child is not exactly huge for their age. And you say, well, they just turned 11 a month ago. They're 10. The question is, if you say, no, they're 11, and you pay out that extra 2 or $3, do you realize it's not just, oh, I have to do the right thing and it costs me $3, but that God gets glory from that action? Something as small as that. Children, when you obey your parents, it has eternal significance. God gets glory from this. In the final judgment, there will be seas of mankind and humanity that will say, God is glorious because his will was obeyed. And look at the good works of his people that he prepared beforehand. It's not just giving your life as a missionary and going for 50 years. It's not just being a martyr like Stephen. It's every time we obey the Lord and do good works, there is eternal glory that God gets from it. Because it's not really our works. It's God's works. It's God's work in us. This is the command that Peter gives to us. He tells us that we are to abstain from sin. That we are to keep our conduct honorable. And we do it in spite of all of the excuses we might bring up. This is the word of the Lord to these pilgrims and exiles. But it's also the word of Lord, the Lord to you and to me. May we have ears to hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this word from your servant Peter. We thank you, Lord, that you have prepared good works for us beforehand. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would, even now, remind us of the greatest of all the works that were done. The only true works that have merit, those of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. We ask, Lord, that you would, even now, turn our eyes toward Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.